This is a Sunday talk by Todd Corbett titled, Discovering Enlightened Nature Within Discouragement, recorded February 28, 2010, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, the question is by a, an anonymous student. We'll call him Joe. Joe asks, he says, I've been practicing for 20 years, and I've experienced lots of peace, but I still feel neurotic sometimes, and enlightenment seems far away. I feel like I am destined to remain deluded for the rest of my life. What can I do? What can I do? My answer at the time was something like, um, rediscover your intention to practice and continue on. And we had... We've probably had several discussions over the next few months related to this question, but eventually he did settle down and was just doing practice, rediscovering his intention. This is something we need to do. At first, we have to, it's, it's like a lot of work. We have to struggle to, why, why am I doing this? It seems really difficult for us. And then after a while, it becomes more clear, but we tend to forget. We get frustrated. And whenever that happens, then we need to return and go, okay, why am I doing this? And rediscover it. Eventually, that intention will be what drives practice moment to moment. So, let's look into this question from three different perspectives. The first one is just, well, what is enlightenment? What, is, what are we striving for here? It sounds pretty big, enlightenment. Wow. And then, who is wanting to be enlightened? And then the third one is, is there anything that can be done to be enlightened? What can we do? It's this question. So first of all, what is enlightenment? And in fact, there is really no answer to this question. But we have a lot of words and we we can chatter about it. And I can give you some definitions. Ultimately, the definitions are not it. In fact, the only way that we ever really know what enlightenment is, is to experience it for ourselves. To actually wake up. So what is enlightenment? Enlightenment, if we can talk about it, is when consciousness awakens to itself. Consciousness awakens. Joe doesn't awaken. Consciousness awakens. Awakens from the dream of a separate self. And it is a non-dual knowing in awakening. 
where the self, the sense of self, and the object that is seen, there is no distinction, no real distinction there. Experience, it's very palpable. There are no selves. There are images, there is imagination, and it's all very lawful, but there are no selves. Not just selves as people, but selves as things, separate objects, just imagination. So there is a clear knowing that all is one. It isn't a knowledge, though. It isn't like, I know this. It is just a naked, direct experience (coughs) of everything as being one. It's not a state, a state of mind. It's not a mood. And in this, there is no time. Time arises, but it's not real. So there is this eternity in which time is spawned and pretends to exist. Now, at the center, you'll often hear Joel talk of enlightenment. He used the word gnosis. Gnosis, which is a Greek word for knowing. And when he uses this term, it confers the same meanings that I've just described enlightenment. And we often use the terms interchangeably. Now if we read the mystics of all the traditions, we discover that they all attest to the same same gnosis or the same enlightenment. And some examples, Meister Eckhart, a Christian mystic, describes it this way. He says, the knower and the known are one. Some simple people think that they will see God as if he were standing there and they here. It is not so. God and I are one. And Shankara, a great Hindu mystic, tells us, the ego has disappeared. I have realized my identity with Brahman. And so all my desires have melted away. I have risen above my ignorance and my knowledge of this seeming universe. And then in the Buddhist tradition, we have Zen master Singstan, who tells us, if the mind makes no distinctions, the 10,000 things are as they are of single essence. To understand the mystery of this one essence is to be released from all entanglements. When all things are seen equally, the timeless self-essence is reached. So there we have three different traditions speaking of the same thing. The words used are a little different but essentially they're describing the same thing. Nevertheless, as I said earlier, to know this truth, we have to discover it for ourselves. Okay.
So the second point was, who is wanting this enlightenment? Who? Well, it's actually an easy question, isn't it? It's Joe. Joe wants to be enlightened. He's the guy asking the question, right? Isn't that so? It's Joe. But who is Joe? Who is this guy? Who are you? A self. A sense of me. An imagination. Imagination wants enlightenment. Now, we have the one consciousness, and we have an imagination arising within it, and it becomes fixated on something and develops a sense of self. Now it wants to return to what it already is. It just doesn't understand that it already is that. It doesn't see it. It can't see it for some reason. As soon as he feels a sense of being isolated, when this feeling arises, he feels separate. Just in that moment, which is this moment. It's always this moment. In the moment of feeling separate from this consciousness, when an imagination suddenly forgets what it is, it is an experience of fear. Fear. And from that fear comes a grasping to return. Wanting to return. To return back to true identity. But now it has an identity of its own. Wanting. It's wanting. Wanting to be whole. So in the process of wanting what we already are, we are denying what we already are. You see that? So the very process of wanting anything is denying what is already present, already here. And so by wanting enlightenment, there's no way we could ever attain it. In essence, really, the enlightenment is what we already are. We're striving to be what we already are. We're already enlightened. Just don't know it. So this striving to be whole is a striving that creates the sense of time. Time is an imagination that is created when we strive for another moment. We reach to another moment. We're leaning out of this moment into another moment. And we create this sense of time that we can feel better at some other point. This is what desire and wanting is, this grasping. So we have this incredible paradox. The wanting is hiding the reality. And yet, we don't know how to stop because we are identified with time. 
And by being identified with time, we take on this imagination as me, and we can strive, and we can move, and we can speak, and we can do all of the things that we do. But it never actually changes. We're always still this imagination. And in every moment, it is a movement to reify that imagination. Just every movement that we make, everything that we do, is a striving. And we can't stop, because the effort to stop is more effort, more self, more striving. So, let's, let's consider worldly striving. Just an example. We need to see, what are we striving for? Let's say we have a, we've been working for this great job. We've been working hard, trying to get this position. And finally, we're going to get it. And we see it's happening. And we just, we've been struggling for this for so long. And now, yes, we're going to get it. It's going to happen. It feels so great. We're just dancing with joy. Everything is just beautiful. We look around us and people we don't like, we love them. (laughs) Everything is just perfect. But what's interesting about this is it won't last. It doesn't last. Because even if a job stays great, there's always something. And we don't see it. We don't understand that what's happened is that it's not the job that's making us happy. It's the fact that we are, for a moment, or sometimes longer than a moment, we're experiencing no wanting. We've, it stopped. Wanting has stopped, and we feel joy, and we attribute it to the new job, or the new car, or whatever it is. But in fact, it isn't any of that. It's the fact that we have actually stopped wanting. Now, we can experience not wanting, just by resting our attention in what's arising just now. Feel just now, right now, just feel. Just now. With only this one. But notice what the mind is doing. Can you feel this little urging, this movement? Or is the attention just resting? And I think some of you, the attention is just resting. Presence of awareness. Awareness doesn't want 
anything. It's perfectly happy. It doesn't need anything. But Joe wants something. And when Joe wants something, he's moving out of this now, constantly. Of course, he can never leave it. Everything is just now. You think of your childhood? When is that? It seems like it's some other time. But all of those thoughts are happening just now. Never any other time. Nothing happens in any other time. We have we have the future, which we're heading towards. And then we have the past, which has just left us. But if we look to find now, well, where is it? There's like there's no there's not even a, a line of now. It goes from being past into the future. Past into the future. Time is irrelevant. And really, now has nothing to do with time. The sense of duration arises. Ah, yeah, okay, I've been sitting here for 15 minutes. That thought arises now. The feeling of duration happening now. It's a thought arising now. So what we see about this who is wanting enlightenment, we really look, we see wanting is wanting enlightenment. Wanting within consciousness is wanting. That's it. That's it. This is who. Sounds ridiculous, but Look for yourself. Don't take my word for any of this. You know, many of you have never seen me before. I could be from the local insane asylum. They just brought me in here. (laughs) Stuck me up here and give them a talk. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta get you back by 3 (laughs) o'clock. That's right. Okay, now the third point was is there anything that we can do to be enlightened? And the, and the answer is no, it's not. We're already enlightened. Oh, that's it. <laughs> so you can get back early. <laughs> that's right. Well, there is something we can do, but it isn't something that we can do to attain enlightenment. What we can do is stop ignoring our enlightenment. Stop ignoring what's already here, right now. So kind of like what we did a few minutes ago, we stopped and go, okay, now, now. But if we do that, and then we just go on about our business, we won't do that again for a year, maybe. 
So we take up a practice. Now, we may not come to this immediately. We kind of think, well, this is really interesting. When I dwell in the now, I feel great. I don't want anything. But as soon as I stop, I want things. And if we get lost in that last part, that can go on like for 10 years or whatever. It can go on a long time. And then we'll notice it again. We'll go, doggone it, why haven't I been... So at some point, we just we realize that we have to do some kind of a committed practice every day, looking, hanging out in now, and being present now. It's not that we're not in now all the time. We are, but we don't know it. It's not that we're you know, not enlightened. We just don't know we're enlightened. And the only way we know it is to settle down and develop a practice. And put this practice right in our life so that every day, regardless of what the mind tells us to do, we just sit. We sit. And we dwell in now. And by doing this, we begin to see into the nature of what it is that we are doing moment to moment to unenlighten ourselves. It cuts through the conditioning. When we do a practice like the, the practice that we did at the beginning, we sit with the breath or with a mantra or whatever uh, practice you use, the primary piece of it, though, is to be present in the immediacy of what is taking place, in the immediacy, in this moment. We rest with whatever is here. And so initially we train with the breath. We become pretty good at staying with it. When the mind goes off into thought, at first we don't know for five minutes or ten or sometimes the whole session, but then eventually if we stay with this, if we're committed we stay with it. What happens is it goes off to thought. You may not see it for, I don't know, 15 seconds, and then, oh, I'm thinking, oh. And I return it then back. Now, I notice it when? Now. So there's a recognition of now, and we're moving back into the breath, which is also now. When we're off in thought, thought is this free form of time and creation and going somewhere, and there's nothing in the world wrong with it. It is the creativity. It's, it's the blessed creativity of the universe. It's, it's, there's nothing wrong. The problem we have with it is that we take it to be real. So this is a training that we're doing. We're training our attention to stop running off so that we can actually see what is here. We are developing a kind of a laboratory in our mind to be able to observe the reality of what is taking place. Actually see. But we can't see outside of this moment. In other words, when we move into thought, we're in, we're in another time. We're, we're in the conceptual world. And it's all imagination. And we can believe anything. But when we rest in this moment, 
what we're doing is we're training attention to be present with what is arising now. So we know where the attention is. When it goes, once we've been practicing a while, when the attention moves into thought, we watch it go. And it's okay. We can watch. We can observe thought arise. So that this training with the breath or with the mantra is a very useful skill because it gives us this... Actually, it's, it's just training attention to be what it is meant to be. Consciousness doesn't need to be self-identified with any form. It just needs to be free-floating. And awareness can just be aware, just as it is. But when we forget that it's where it is, then that's like a, we've gone unconscious. And that unconsciousness is the sense of self. So what's interesting now when we start to practice is that this business of being present with the breath is not fun for the self. It's not enjoyable for the self. It's, well, it doesn't support the self. It doesn't support the sense of me, the story of I. And because of that, we don't want to do it. We experience resistance to practice. Oh, what is that? That's our wanting. The wanting is coming right up in the practice. We're sitting in present moment. Well, at first we don't we don't want to go there because we've got enough, we've got our hands full with just being aware of the breath and running to thought and other distractions and returning it. But once mindfulness has been established then we can rest the attention in this wanting. And we begin to see some things that we didn't see before. I wanted to mention this quote from the Bhagavad Gita, and it's about this business of resistance to practice that comes up. And really, if we... If we're not really careful, we're going to end up just ditching our practice because it's powerful. Delusion is powerful. It, it has harnessed the power of consciousness, essentially. So, in the Bhagavad Gita, we have this quote. Krishna is telling Arjuna as he is about to embark in this battle. Now, this is a spiritual epic. It's really about The battle is the battle in the mind, dealing with the self. There are many ways to interpret the Bhagavad Gita, but this is probably one of the most most useful ways. He says, paying attention takes you to the supreme. Find the distinction between the field and the knower of the field, and align yourself thus, and you align yourself with truth. And he says... Know this field as it truly is. And then he tells Arjuna to gird up your loins and get out there and fight. And so this is really what it's about. Now, of course, if you take this into your meditation, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight. Well, it's over. <laughs> Not going to have too much uh, success. But it, the metaphor is great because we are doing spiritual battle here. You see, but the value of the teaching is 
it shows you the power of me. You've got to be careful here because it does make it sound like the self is something to get rid of or something to squelch. And it's not. And that's what makes the battle really an interesting battle. Because it's not about that at all. It's about mobilizing your own resources, your own motivation to be present with what is rather than getting sucked up and drawn away and identified with it. One thing that we can do when we are wavering in our practice is to be clear about our intention, as I mentioned before. What is it that we really want? Is it a deep longing for God? Is it something that we feel in our heart? Is it a longing for truth? No matter what, I want to know the truth. Or do we realize that this practice is actually a way to save all sentient beings? And that is my purpose. That is what I'm going to do. And that mobilizes you to practice. And then, here we go. We may practice for 20 years as Joe, and we're struggling with it. We want results. I know all that stuff about it. I'm already enlightened. I know, but, 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 but. What is that? That is the wanting. Right there, that is the wanting. So we bring that into our attention. We let it rest there in the here and now. When it arises, just like when we're hanging out in the now, we feel the wanting. We feel for what it is. The stories fall away, and we see. We discover what it is like to have a lack of expectation. We discover a simplicity and an appreciation for what arises, whatever it is, in this moment. We begin to discern a different world. It is not something that we are creating. We are discovering something which is already here. And that is very important to see, because this is not... This is not a self-improvement project. It is, a, it is a, an activity of seeing. Seeing clearly. That's all. It's not some highfalutin thing either. Just to see. It's just to settle back and be willing to look. Our stories, our self-stories, begin to become irrelevant. Joe sees himself <coughs> essentially as irrelevant at some point. It just becomes obvious. Now, it's not shooting down the conventional world at all. The image of Joe, the stories of Joe, going to work, doing whatever, fine, perfect. 
but it's just imagination. That's all it can ever be. And we see that the slightest effort is pointless and futile. It goes nowhere. Effort comes out of striving. And we begin to see nakedly, what is this striving? It's just, you know, we've, we've been striving our whole life to be happy. And what? What do we got? We, we see it's not working. So we're beginning to see through the facade of striving in the world to attain some kind of true abiding happiness. It does not get it. It will never do it. No matter how many times we win the lottery, it will not work. It will only succeed in burying us in ignorance for another 10, 20 years. And then it will return. Once again, the question, what can I do? What can I do? We see that desire is just energetic arising moment to moment, arising and passing. When we reach this point, we are in what center we refer to as a state of kenosis. It's a state in which the sense of self has pretty much evaporated. It can come back, but it doesn't have much power. Because we see through it, we we often see through it, and we just really have no... The wanting is just about disintegrated. Once in a while, there'll be a little ebbing of wanting something, but then we uh, we don't know why we're doing what we're doing. We're going to work. We don't know why. We're doing it. We're doing it well. We're we're able to function usually. This is actually this state of kenosis is actually the state in which enlightenment or gnosis can take place. It is the only time that we are actually able to awaken, to truly awaken. Now here's a quote from Zen master Hakuin who describes a seeker who has reached such a state, kenosis. He says, his normal processes of thought, perception, consciousness, and emotion will cease. He will reach the limits of words and reason. He will resemble an utter fool as everything, including his erstwhile determination to pursue the way, disappears and his breath itself hangs almost suspended. This is the occasion when the tortoise shell is about to crack, the phoenix about to break free of its egg. In this moment, the desire for enlightenment has become absurd. There is nothing. At this point, with nothing to distract it, attention may recognize itself as the one consciousness. But it is not something that we can will. It is a matter of grace. But because attention has ceased to grasp, Nothing really is needed. And so we're really wide open to recognize. It's like a wave in the ocean settling down. There's just no more activity. And it settles down into the sea. 
until the wave is the sea. It recognizes itself as the sea. And this attention, which has been running all around, which has settled down and come into the sea, awakens as this one consciousness. And now, whatever arises is just a momentary expression of it. The sound of a car horn, a bird, pile of dog shit, doesn't matter. Whatever it is that we experience in that moment, the one consciousness expressing itself in that way. Now, desire can arise in this, but desire and wanting are different now. They are expressions of this one consciousness. Expressions. There's nobody wanting anything. When this arises, this wanting, feeling, it's not grasping. It's just, it's the play of consciousness. Wanting to play. It is the wisdom of discriminating love and compassion. Dancing. So, in summary, in response to Joe's question, we need to exhaust our practices. And when we are practicing and we're wondering, well, when is this ever going to happen? What can I do? Just go back and reestablish your your primary intention. What What is driving you to practice? And continue. Because it is the process of exhausting the wanting. The wanting has to just become so tired of itself that it can actually see the pointlessness of it and it falls away. All that is needed is to allow everything to be exactly as it is. And this cannot happen as long as we are striving for that to happen. So it requires attention, seeing. I have one final quote for you. And it is um, from Zen Master Dogen. And he is saying, basically he is summarizing this path as the path through the sense of self, which is the wanting. And he says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. And to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. To be enlightened by all things is to cast off the body and mind of the self as well as those of others. Even the traces of enlightenment are wiped out, and life with traceless enlightenment goes on forever and ever. That's all I have.
Are there any questions? Comments? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I would like to understand better how this practice saves all sentient beings. I really <laughs> have a hard time with that one. It does. <laughs> <laughs> We think we know what sentient beings are. You see, and by doing these practices, the way we see everything changes. What we see as a self-entity, a separate being, is our own consciousness. We think we see a lot of things going on in the world outside of ourselves. There's suffering, we see, you know, the earthquakes and the tsunamis and these horrible things. So when we do these practices and we really become still, we begin to notice that whatever is arising is our own consciousness. Everything, all of these creatures, all of these faces, your own consciousness. That is incomprehensible to the separate self. Absolutely incomprehensible. And so... The teacher recommends find your intention. Practice. What I discovered on my path, I had a very kind of um, wild path. Every two years for about 12 years, there was a major loss in my life, a death and a tragedy of some kind. And, and there was all this grief. And I had a terrible time with the grief. And I, I, you know, I come to Joel and I just be, just angry, and, and he would tell me some little thing, and I'd go back and practice <laughs> essentially what I said here today. Just, you know, find your intention and return. What I began to see, though, as I sat with my these horrible stories. And, I suddenly one day just could see clearly that all of this stuff, all of these people, they were, it was all happening in me. I began to see that I'm living in an imagination. And by, by really discerning, what you begin to recognize is it is all an imagination arising in this consciousness. We see all of these people that we see are our own stories. The only way in is to actually do the practice and see for yourself. I began to think I was getting just a little screwy with when I would see this, when I would have a just a deep insight into this. But when I go to the mystics and I read, I'd see, oh my God, this is what they're talking about. So then I would let that go and I would just focus in on my own deep emotion, sorrow. I just felt this horrible grief. And I tried all kinds of techniques to work with it. And, and, you know, they were helpful. But they didn't end it. They just kept happening and happening. And sometimes they would get worse. And I knew that, you know, well, practice really isn't about ending anything. It's about seeing. So I kept seeing. And then I discovered something. These feelings are sentient beings. They are sentient beings. And I began to actually recognize their nature. They have, they want. It's like wanting. 
You know, wanting is a sentient being. You can recognize it has a life of its own. It, it is birthed with the desire to have something. We <laughs> claim it. We think it's us that we're having it. That's how self gets created in the first place. So awareness sees this. It sees wanting. And then it's like, oh, this is a creature. This is a sentient being. Now, this is really bizarre because I then begin to feel a certain compassion for this creature. I could see and feel directly its suffering. And by recognizing it this way, it just, they cleared out. Now, it's not like I got rid of them. What happens is they are then able to be seen as they actually are. Because I am no longer resisting them in any way. I'm loving them. The enlightened nature actually envelops them. It's what we already are. And when we do that, it's like they're free. Attention infuses them, and they're released back into consciousness. The <coughs> fixation of the mind, of the sense of me. That helped? A lot. Good, good. Um, so you mentioned about um, practices not self-improvement project. Yeah. And you talked about resistance to practice. Yeah. Now, I wanted to give you a specific example so I could see a little clearly that I've been sick for a while, so I haven't been be I haven't been able to practice. And now I'm just kind of sort of like fell in the crack of having this resistance to go back into practice. And you said this is not, you know, self-improvement project. So, so right here, what you would see is, okay, well, I guess it's time to practice and just move on. Or, or just like, so I shouldn't be like beating myself or not be able to. So what exactly you will be thinking you would be doing so just you wouldn't take it as self-improvement. I'm going to go back to the, the original answer that I gave to Joe, and that is go to your intention to practice. Just do that. And, and whether you want to call it a self-improvement project or not, doesn't really matter. What you want to do is you want to see why do I want to practice. Is it, is it because I want to feel better? What is it that you really want? You know, it's like, do I, do, I, do I have a sense that I'm wasting my life by not connecting with what is true, what is real? That I don't know myself. You know, that feeling. That's a great one. Because when you start going into that, you realize that you actually don't know what you are. And so there's a, there's a longing to know yourself, to know what you really are. Of course, this is the longing to recognize your own enlightenment. Yes? Can you put into words what grace is and then what part grace plays in becoming aware of yourself? I mean, as much as you can approach it with words, but you cannot make yourself wake up because every movement to try to do anything reasserts your sense of self. And so, because of that, you continue to strive and you keep running into the same wall over and over again. 
At some point, you realize that this is hopeless. And you stop, and like I described, into this state of kenosis. But in this state of kenosis, you can't wish yourself then to be enlightened. And so you, you just, every time it comes up, you just see that, and it's just wanting, and you just let it go. So then what happens is, it's up to God. It's up to consciousness itself. Consciousness then awakens out of itself. You can see it's something that is not the self. And you recognize that it is God. Something unspeakable. But you make it possible, you make it more likely to happen by doing these practices because you've eliminated all of the obstacles to it. That makes sense. So now consciousness can just wake up. Consciousness can recognize what is already here. All it takes in a moment of kenosis is just some change. On retreat, back in 2004, I'd been sitting and I was in the state of kenosis. And I just, I was at this retreat. I didn't know why I was at this retreat. I really didn't know anything. I was just an idiot. You know, a fool. And so I got up at the end of the meditation at the end stood up and walked to my room and I opened the door to my room and you know these are little little tiny rooms I have like a bed I opened the door and there is this being on my bed there was this creature and the whole room just lit up it was like a, a kind of a fear response the room lit up and and I saw this guy is like a god or something with, you know, big funny eyes and beads and kind of glowing. And it was just a momentary thing. I mean, it was just a flash. And then suddenly it was Abdullah. And I was in his room. And so I, I closed the door and I went down in my room. But as I was walking away, everything was different. Spacious. And I think at the time I used the description, it was like being in a huge auditorium at night with all the lights out. I felt like an auditorium with the lights out, just this huge space. This was the, the first couple of hours, and I just sat on my bed in space, you know. And, and in the Zen tradition, they talk all the time about, you know, the Zen master blows out the candle. And the guy wakes up. He's in that kenosis, and he wakes up. Or the sound of a bird. Anything that happens suddenly like that is uh, positive. I had an experience last week I thought you might have a comment on. As soon as I had it, I thought, I have to tell someone about this experience, but it just kind of hit me as one of those things. Um, I walked here last week, and I had a, a baseball cap on that I like, the, the Shakespeare cap. And somewhere along the way, it fell out of my back pocket. I taken it off. And I got here and I went, ah, oh, I lost my hat. So the whole time I'm sitting here at class, I wonder, I wonder if you know, I can find it on the way home. And uh, Nick gave me a ride back, and we sort of traced the way back at least to Willamette in 29th. You know, and I'm watching the sidewalks, and then, you know, and neither of us sees it, so that's it. I start walking home from there, and I pass this street, which I guess is Portland or whatever, on the south side of uh, 29th. And I walked by and I thought, oh, you know, I walked up that road. 
And I walk back a step, and I just kind of glance up there, and way up, maybe two and a half blocks up, I see like this little thing in the gutter. I'm like, nah. And I start walking again. I thought, well, how much do I actually want this hat? So I said, okay, I'll start walking. I'll get as close as I can so I can see what this thing is. And maybe it is. And I start walking. And I'm looking at it. It's, I can't tell. And I get a block closer. And I can't quite tell, but could be, you know. And I get to within about a half a block, but I see it's kind of like a, a piece of wood. You know, that's there in the, in the gutter. I'm like, ah. oh, well, I tried. I turn around. I walk three steps. And there's my hat. Right in front of me on the street, I walked right by it, looking for this thing out there, and it turned out not to be it. And I'm like, whoa. You know, it was like the simultaneous whoa of my hat was right there, I found it, and I walked right by it, not seeing it, because I'd been looking out there for something that was... Good analogy. Good analogy, yes. As we want something, or as we want anything, we're distracted from what is here already. That's wonderful. Okay. Are there any other questions? Yes, yeah, you quoted the Bhagavad Gita, and you were talking about seeing the field, and I guess with the eyes in the field, that's how you put it? Yes. And being thus, or something like that. I like to go over that. Paying attention takes you to supreme. Find the distinction between the field and the knower of the field. Align yourself thus, and you align with truth. Because there is no distinction between the seer and the seen. They are one. So, right now, there is Abdullah and Tan in duality. But what is really happening here? It's just awareness communing. And you can recognize it. The, the visual field arises perfectly in consciousness. It is an expression of consciousness. The visual field is awareness. So that's what he's referring to. The field of consciousness. Okay, so let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome to stick around and uh, have some tea. Until we meet again, peace to you all.